Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. The late 18th century was a good time for Uthman Don Fodil. Once an ordinary teacher and cleric, Fodil's teachings had recently caught wind among the middle and lower urban classes of Gobir, turning him into a rising celebrity. These followers began to form their own community, or Jama'a, which sought to implement Fodil's ideology into material reality. His message urged the kings of Hausa to abandon unfair taxes, illegal land seizures, the enslavement of Muslims, and to reject the lingering pagan practices carried on by the royal nobility and royal magicians. Even the Sarki of Gobir, Bawa, overcame his early suspicions of Fodio and elevated him to the job of the official religious leader of the kingdom. Not only that, but Gobir's Sufi community had also recently granted Fodio the title of Shehu, or Wise Elder. However, these good times would not last. In this episode, we'll learn about how Uthman Dan Fodio finally came into conflict with the Sarkis of Kasarhausa and finally initiated his famous jihad. Part 3, From Shekhu to Revolutionary Like a ghastly harbinger in the night, the first silhouette of the coming troubles appeared when the Sarki of Gobir, Bawa, passed away. At first, this didn't change much. Bawa's younger brother, a man named Jakob, was quickly elevated to the throne of Gobir, and chose to maintain his brother's policy of acceptance towards the Jama'a. Jakob's rule was uneventful and, in the grand scheme of things, pretty brief. After six years on the throne, Jakob was slain while leading a battle in a brief border skirmish against the neighboring kingdom of Kanu. A childless man, Jakob's death meant that the youngest of the Gobir princes was elevated to the throne. His name was Nefata. Upon his crowning as the new Sarki of Gobir, Nefata radically reversed course when it came to the Gobir state's relationship with Sheikh Ufodio and the Jama'a. While his brothers had, depending on the time, viewed the Jama'a as either a threat that needed to be appeased or a powerful ally that needed to be kept, the new Sarki of Gobir viewed the Jama'a with outright hostility. From Nefata's view, the Jama'a were an imminent danger, one that, if he didn't act quickly to counteract them, would obviously continue to grow and proliferate in number, and even threaten the positions of future kings of Gobir. However, he approached the issue with patience. After taking the throne in 1796, the first five years of the Sarki's reign were spent quietly feuding with the Jama'a. While the Jama'a was allowed, at least in theory, to continue meeting and spreading their message, Nefata began to engage in some light persecutions of the community. This typically included actions like arresting prominent followers with spurious justifications, forcefully disbanding meetings, or seizing the property of well-known members. Members of the Jama'a responded by pressuring the Sarki to release prisoners or resuming meetings in new locations, and the Sarki would oblige, cautiously refusing to overstep his limits. The feud remained quiet until tensions gave way to a full-blown political crisis in 1802. The timeline of what happened next is more than a little unclear, as the beginnings of political crises often are. According to all accounts of events, the crisis truly began when Sheikh Uthman at one point called on the men of the Jama'a to begin arming themselves. While he ostensibly never made call to arms against any specific enemy, everyone knew who the Jama'a were arming themselves against. Speaking to his followers, the Sheikh is said to have proclaimed, Truly, to have your weapons ready is Sunnah. It is the way of Islam. Now, all primary accounts of the Sokoto Jihad acknowledge that this happens, but the context differs immensely depending on who you ask. 
According to sources critical of Fodio and the Shema, such as writings of the Sarkis court historians, this call to collect arms was totally unprovoked and out of the blue. Obviously, Fodio was planning treason against Gobir, so it was in response to this call to gather arms that Sarki Nafata initiated the first true legal persecution of the Shema. In a controversial edict, the Sarki proclaimed a number of new laws and provisions that were clearly aimed at weakening the power of Fodio and his community. From now on, it was illegal for non-Muslims to convert to Islam, and any recent converts had to recant their faith. The chin-concealing turbans and female head coverings that had become symbols of sympathy for the Jama were also banned. Finally, all proselytizing of the Islamic faith was banned, though the Sarki did make the concession that Fodio himself could continue to preach to audiences already sympathetic to the religion. But still, his associates were prohibited from doing so, and neither were allowed to advocate conversion to the faith to outsiders. Sources more sympathetic to the Sheikh tell a similar story, but in a different order of events. According to an account of Abdullahi Dan Fodio, the Sheikh's proclamation came only in response to the widespread but less overt persecution of the Jama'a by state authorities during those aforementioned first five years of Nafata's reign as Sarki. Regardless of who can be blamed for the initial escalation of tensions between the Gobir government and the Jama'a, clearly things were getting out of hand. Civil war between the Sarki and the Jama'a seemed to be just on the horizon, only waiting for a spark to ignite the blaze. To ensure that he would be ready for the imminent civil war, Sarki Nafata issued a new series of controversial taxes with the intention of paying for further expanding his army. This included new taxes on property, traded goods, and, most controversially, on cattle herds. As we learned last episode, cattle herds had been marked as tax-exempt by previous kings of Gobir. Uthman Donfolio was strongly opposed to this practice, and loudly criticized the refusal to tax cattle herders. This critique won him no friends among his fellow Fulbe. While a small minority of the Fulbe, including Fodio himself, had found jobs as merchants or academics in big cities, many of the Fulbe remained nomadic cattle herders, who were very happy that their herds weren't being taxed, thank you very much. Fodio's criticism of the tax exemption on cattle herds had dramatically weakened the Jama's reach among the rural Fulbe. In fact, Fodio's criticism of the tax exemptions on cattle herds had dramatically weakened the reach of his message among the rural Fulbe. But then, Nefada began to levy taxes on cattle. The nomadic Fulbe, who had remained loyal to the Gobir state largely because of the cattle tax exemptions, suddenly had the main thing ensuring their loyalty to the Sarki Gobir snatched away. Many began to flock to Fodio's banner. Meanwhile, the spark to civil war was being set off in Fodio's hometown of Degel. Some members of the Jama'a defied Nefata's orders, continuing to wear their turbans in public and, in the case of converts, refusing to convert back to their old faiths. One particularly prominent disciple of Fodio, a Hausa cleric named Abdel Salam, began to attract the ire of the Gobir government when he continued proselytizing his faith in violation of Nefata's edict. Soon, an order was put out for Salam's arrest. After asking the Sheikh for advice, Fodio told Salam that the ideal Islamic response to persecution was not to accept it, but it was also not to fight it directly. Rather, the ideal response was to flee. To Evidence's conclusion, the Sheikh pointed to the historical example set by the Prophet Muhammad himself. When the companions of the Prophet were being persecuted by the elites of Mecca, the Prophet instructed them to flee the city, first to the empire of Aksum in East Africa, 
and later to the city of Medina. Salam heeded Fodio's advice, and moved his family and a small group of close associates out of Degel. They fled to the town of Gimbana, a small settlement located on the eastern fringes of Gobir's domain. The territory was a relatively recent conquest, annexed during wartime from the kingdom of Kebbi. As a frontier town, the Sarki's authority was much less palpable in Gimbana, so there, Abdel Salam and his allies would find safety. Soon, Gimbana began to grow as the main destination for members of the Jama'a who were fleeing the Sarki's persecution. If any of the Sheikh's followers found that the situation in Degel or other major cities in Gobir was becoming too hot, they knew that they could find safety in Gimbana. From this new safe locale, Fodio's followers continued to gather arms and prepare for the coming conflict. But, just when it seemed like civil war was an imminent, unstoppable reality, a sudden wave of relief washed over Gobir. In 1802, just months after his passage of the inflammatory regulations on Islam, Nafata suddenly and shockingly died. And better yet, Nafata's son, the young prince Yunfa, was first in line to become the next Sarki of Gobir. The crowning of Yunfa was great news for Fodio and the Jama. Yunfa had, of course, been a longtime student of the Shehu. He had studied Fodio's writings and attended his lectures. And not only had Yunfa studied under Fodio, but one of his first acts as the new king was to appoint a new royal vizier, a man who was known to be quite sympathetic to the Shehu as well. Surely, Yunfa would see more eye-to-eye with the Jama than his father had, right? Well, in yet another shocking turn of events things wouldn't work out that way. Sadly, we lack any sympathetic sources that can provide insight into his rationale, but Yunfa would prove just as, if not more hostile towards Fodio and the Jama than his father. Why the former student turned so dramatically on his teacher is a mystery, though even pro-Fodio sources typically claim that it was not, at least initially, due to the fault of Yunfa himself. At first, Yunfa did try to reconcile with the Jama. The Sarki sent out a message to Fodio that was quite charitable and solutions-oriented. He politely informed his old teacher that he intended to end the persecution of the Jama'a, but that in order to do so, he would need Abdel Salam to return to Degel. So, he requested the Sheikh's help in convincing Salam to come back. Fodio replied in his own respectful manner, stating that he'd be happy to do so, if he could reassure Salam with utter certainty that the persecution of the Jama'a was over and if property destroyed during the previous persecutions were compensated for. However, the budding reconciliation between the king of Gobir and the Jama'a was brought to a screeching halt by a case of sabotage. An Islamic scholar in Yunfa's court, a longtime enemy of Fodio and a legacy hire from his father's administration, intercepted Fodio's letter and strategically paraphrased its intended message, rewriting it in a much less conciliatory and more rebellious tone. In the summary passed on by this royal scholar, Fodio's letter came across as a straightforward refusal of Yunfa's request, and included an accusation that the Sarki was lying about ending the persecution. Furious at what was, from his perspective, the obvious first steps of treacherous insubordination, Yunfa abandoned hope of reconciling with his old teacher. Clearly, his father had been right that Fodio was an uncontrollable agent of treason, and not a potential ally. Yunfa fired his pro-Fodio vizier and ordered his army to march on Gimbana, where they would force the refugees to return to Degel, whether they wanted to or not. Meanwhile, Yunfa maintained the visage of still being a loyal student eager to reconnect with his old teacher. 
he set a trap and invited Uthman and Abdullah Hidanforio to his palace in Alkalawa. His plan was to suddenly draw a pistol and shoot the men dead before they could react cutting off the head of the Jama'ah and ending Fodio's coming rebellion before it began. When Uthman and Abdullahi arrived at the palace, everything went according to plan at first. The brothers were not suspecting Yinfa's scheme, and when he pulled the gun out in the middle of the conversation, the Sheikhu and Abdullahi froze in shocked silence. But suddenly, as Yunfa pulled the trigger, the gun backfired. The powder exploded in a blaze, mutilating the Sarki's hand while no slug exited the barrel. As Yunfa clutched at his wounded hand, the Shehu and his brother remained in their state of shocked paralysis. When they finally developed the nerve to ask Yunfa why he had tried to kill them, the Sarki shouted, Know that I have no enemy on earth equal to you, followed by a slew of insults as he retreated into the palace. Recognizing that the inevitable conflict between the Jama'ah and government had finally arrived, Uthman and Abdullahi left the palace and plotted their next move. As Yunfa's failed assassination unfolded, his soldiers arrived in Gimbana. There, they demanded that Abdus Salam must return to Degel with all haste, or face violent consequences. Salam refused, and the Gobir soldiers made good on their threat. The Sarki's men rampaged throughout Gimbana. Men sympathetic to the Jama'ah were butchered, while women and children were captured and sold into slavery. The few men of the Jama'ah who managed to mount a defense were hastily overwhelmed. The Gimbana massacre was a decisive victory for Yunfa. Ironically, while at first he had tried to reconcile with the Jama and bring the refugees back to Degel, Yunfa now made the opposite demand. Fodio and the survivors of the Jama could either leave Gobir and live, or try to stay in Gobir and be destroyed. While the Jama had been stockpiling weapons, Uthman and Abdullahi both knew that their men would be utterly crushed if they tried to stand up against the large, well-armed forces of Gobir. Thus, the Shehu relented and called on his followers to join him in leaving Gobir in 1803. In an event called the Sokoto Hijra, or the Migration, Followers of Fodio came from all over Gobir and even other parts of Kasarhausa, flocking together in the region of Gudu, a land just beyond the western frontiers of Gobir's influence. If Yunfa believed that exiling the Jama'ah from Gobir would eliminate them as a real threat to his power, he was dead wrong. Rather, the exile proved to be the perfect outcome for the Shehu's interests. In Gudu, there was no existing political order that was strong enough to oppose the Jama'ah, so Fodio quickly rose to become the de facto ruler of the region. This de facto rulership soon became de jure, as the Jama'a hailed Fodio as the new Amir al-Mumenin, or Commander of the Faithful. From his newly secure position in Gudu, Fodio and his men were able to collect more arms, organize more supporters into an even more formidable fighting force, and attract allies not only from other house estates, but even a few volunteers from all across the Sahel. The Hijra also saw the Sheikhu abandon any remaining attachment to the idea of reconciling with the monarchy and reforming the government of Gobir from within. A year into this exile, Fodio composed and published a political manifesto, the Wadikat al-Sudan wa Manshala min al The manifesto, which I'll just call the Wadika, was significantly more overt and radical in its political messaging. The Wadika laid out the Sheikhu's theory of revolution which he believed took place in seven distinct phases. The first step was called, Enjoin what is right. In this phase, the people had to come together and decide what ideals they should strive for and support. In a sense, they had to first imagine what a better world looked like. Next, they moved on to step two, Prohibit what is wrong. 
In this step, the people had to recognize the elements of the present status quo that were holding back their society from reaching their shared ideal. The third step was hijra, or migration. In this step, the most committed revolutionaries would have to take the risky decision to abandon their old lives and physically exit the old society. There, they would form a temporary new society elsewhere, with the goal of eventually regrouping so they could overthrow the old system. Next was befriending the believers, in which the revolutionaries created solidarity among like-minded people, forming a group with the willpower to carry on an armed struggle to defeat the old order. Next, they would stockpile the numbers and weapons to wage war against their enemy. Then, in the sixth phase, the people appoint a commander of the faithful, pledge loyalty to him and his confidants, and only then, finally, were they ready for the final step. The struggle, jihad, revolution, the ultimate face-off between those who wish to live in a better, more righteous world, and those who cling to preserve the wicked status quo. He did write about three more steps to take after a successful jihad, but in 1803, steps 6 and 7 represented the You Are Here label on the revolutionary map. Additionally, the Sheikh provided some insight into how his Islamic society should function after the jihad was completed. In the Wadika, he listed some examples of behaviors that, after the jihad, Muslim societies should never commit. Some of these behaviors included declaring fellow Muslims as unbelievers for any reason, to engage in eternal warfare, to remain among the commander of believers without paying him loyalty, to fight wars against fellow sincere Muslims, to take freeborn Muslims as slaves, and to misuse or abuse the finances of the community. Fodia wrote that there was simply never an acceptable excuse for Islamic society to engage in any of those behaviors. Finally, the Sheikhu concludes the Wadiqat by providing a list of enemies of this budding Islamic society. These enemies included not only straightforwardly pagan societies who rejected the Islamic faith, but also insincere and cynical monarchs who proclaimed themselves to be Muslim while persecuting Muslim believers. In practice, the concluding chapter of the Wadika was essentially a declaration that every state in Qasr Hausa and its surroundings was an enemy of the Jama'ah. The book was not only a declaration of war against Gobir, but a declaration of war against all of the neighboring kingdoms. While the Jama'ah were making their own preparations, Yunfa was not sitting idle. He too was preparing for war. Remember, Fodio had been quite popular with the lower ranks of infantry in the Gobir army so many of them chose to defect and join the Jama'ah right before the Hijra of 1803. In an effort to bolster his depleted ranks, the Sarki reached out to other monarchies around Qasr Hausa, pleading for aid against this rising threat that would surely subsume them all. A few kingdoms chose to remain neutral, but many, including Kanu and Katsina, feared that the Jama'ah would become a threat to them too if left unchecked, and chose to send men, weapons, and funds to Yunfa. The Sarki also hired mercenaries from all over the Sahel, including Amazigh, other Hausa, Nupe, and even mercenaries from as far afield as the Nubian-speaking peoples from modern Sudan. These forces combined to form an army of almost 10,000 men, including more than a 1,000 Lifida-wearing noble cavalry. Feeling that he was finally ready for war, Sarki Yunfa ordered his army to march on Gudu ready to finally destroy the Jama'ah and nip Fodio's rebellion in the bud once and for all. We'll be back after a quick break. 
How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Fodio's army, on the other hand, was much less impressive. The forces he commanded numbered less than a thousand men, and included a paltry 25 horsemen, with the odds overwhelmingly favoring Yunfa. Fodio and his men braced themselves for their coming imminent destruction. Though, on the very eve of battle, two new forces made a timely arrival to make the odds just a little bit less overwhelming. First, there was a group of a little over a hundred Gobirawa foot soldiers, who had defected from Yunfa's army. Initially, these men had been hesitant to desert, but when they heard of Yunfa's orders to attack the Jama'a, they simply couldn't go through with it. Instead, they force-marched ahead of him to Godu and pledged their loyalty to Fodio. A more familiar face also arrived to support the Jama'a. The second army was led by Fodio's old teacher, the now elderly Sheikh Jibril ibn Omar. While the men had possessed more than their fair share of serious disagreements, they still saw eye-to-eye on most matters. Omar had ultimately decided that he could not stand idly by and let his old pupil be slain. He and a group of close friends and supporters joined the Jama'a's camp and declared their readiness for battle. Uthman, always the philosopher and never the politician, decided that he was not the right fit to lead the men into battle. As usual, this was a task for Abdullahi. As Yunfa's men marched into Gudu, Abdullahi's army at first refused to fight them in a pitched battle. Rather, Abdullahi maneuvered his army always just out of Yunfa's reach, occasionally skirmishing with Yunfa's flanks, but never committing to a fight. But eventually, on the 21st of June, 1804, Abdullahi's army was caught out in a position that they could not retreat from. In an effort to trick Yunfa, who expected Abdullahi to take up a defensive position within Gudu, Abdullahi led his army deep into the Gobir countryside. This worked, and Yunfa was caught off guard. The maneuver bought Abdullahi a few precious weeks of time, while Yunfa was busy repositioning his army to give chase. However, on the 21st of June, 1804, Yunfa's army finally caught Abdullahi at a lake just east of Alkalawa, known as Tadkinkwatu. As the two armies observed each other fully for the first time, it was abundantly obvious who held the advantage. Not only was Yunfa's force larger and better trained, they were also better rested and more comfortable. In a description of the time before the battle, as he was viewing Yunfa's camp, Abdullahi spoke of his covetous feelings towards the condition of the Sarki's soldiers. While Yunfa's men sat in luxurious carpeted tents eating fresh meat and honey cakes, the Jama'a had spent the last months in Gudu living off a combination of the hospitality of the locals and whatever they could find. While the Sheikhu taught not to envy others, I can't imagine that the Jama'a weren't at least a little bit jealous. These stirrings of jealousy subsided, however, as the battle began. Muhammad Bello, the 15-year-old son of the Sheikhu, was present at the battle and described what he saw. The Battle of Tabginkwatu represented the beginning of the end for Yunfa's war effort. Soon after the battle, Abdullahi continued his advance all the way up through Gobir, capturing and occupying the entirety of the kingdom save for the well-fortified city of Al-Kalawa. Shortly after his army had captured Gobir, Fodio made the decision to choose a new capital. 
He wanted his new capital to be accessible, both to the old base in Gudu, as well as in the newly recaptured territories in Gobir. Folio eventually decided that the perfect site was a small village named Sokoto. Due to its strategic location, Fodio chose Sokoto as his new capital. With Fodio's decision, the destiny of this small village of Sokoto was changed forever. From his new capital, the Sheikhu had to figure out what he would do in the aftermath of this shocking success. Immediately, Fodio reached out to Yunfa in an effort to sign for peace. While the Sarki remained held up in his fortress in Alkalawa, both he and the Sheikhu knew that prolonging the fighting through a drawn-out siege would not reverse the course of the war, but would only prolong the bloodshed. Yunfa agreed to the peace talks, but fearing that the offer might be a deception to capture the city in his absence, he refused to personally meet with Fodio at Sokoto. Rather, he sent his old vizier, the man who had pushed for peace with Fodio, to act as an ambassador. While the vizier was kind and spoke in good faith, Uthman and his advisors decided that it would be impossible to negotiate peace without Yunfa present. The Sarki, though, continued to refuse to leave his fortress. With Yunfa refusing to yield, the siege of Alkalawa began. At first, the siege progressed slowly. Abdullahi and his men had, at many points, attempted to scale the city's walls and been driven back in bloody fashion. After four grueling years of sieging had passed, Abdullahi ordered one final assault against the city's defenses. The assault was nightmarish. Men threw themselves in human waves at the fortified enemy, and even Abdullahi himself was vitally wounded and nearly died. But even if at a slow pace, the Jama'a's forces slowly pushed through the defenses of Alkalawa. After hours of slow progress, they had managed to scale the wall and drive the defenders back. Abdullahi's army flooded into Alkalawa. Sarki Yunfa made one final stand in his palace with a group of close confidants, and was killed in the fighting. After four brutal years of standoff, the Sheikhu's forces had finally captured Alkalawa. With the conclusion of their victory over Yunfa, the Jama'a was no longer a mere political movement but the reigning power in Gobir. Uthman Danfodio, through popular election by his loyal followers, was declared the first Imam of Husa, or the religious head of state of Qasr Hausa. As the newly elected Imam Fodio had made clear in the Wadikat, the fall of Gobir was merely the beginning, not the end of the jihad. Kanu and Katsina, after all, had actively supported Yunfa during his war against the Jama'a. However, the Shehu did not simply want to proceed to war until he had some kind of legal justification. In the waiting months of 1808, Fodio sent out a series of letters to the kings of other major Hausa kingdoms, Katsina, Kanu, and Zazao. The letters made strong and provocative demands of the kings, urging them to accept the overlordship of the Shehu. The demand was incendiary, and, as Fodio likely knew, it was doomed to fail. The Sarki of Kanu obstinately refused, tearing up the letter in an act of frustration. The Sarki of Katsina, though more hesitant, also declined and readied his kingdom for war. Surprisingly, the Sarki of Zazao actually accepted the demand. However, this outraged the local nobility, who overthrew the king upon hearing the news and joined Katsina and Kanu in their war against the Imamit. Without getting too bogged down in the details, the campaigns of the Sokoto Imamit against the remaining Hausa kingdoms were bloody and riddled with setbacks. Some of the most skilled and beloved figures of the early Jama'a died in the war, while Fodio's armies suffered numerous crushing defeats, especially in the early stages of the war. Despite these early setbacks, though, the Imamit persevered. Aided by like-minded Muslim volunteers from throughout the Sahel, as well as endemically common defection among the ranks of their enemies, 
the Imamit's armies eventually overcame their foes. By 1808, the entirety of Qasr Hausa was now under Fodio's control. The Jihad continued east, sacking the capital of the Borno Empire and overthrowing the old dynasty. While Bornu persisted as a rump state under a new dynasty, much of the territory west of Lake Chad was integrated into the growing territory of Sokoto. The territories of Sayawa and Ajawa were also conquered by one of Fodio's followers. The war camp from this campaign formed the basis of what would eventually become one of the most important cities in northern Nigeria, Bauchi. Meanwhile, another member of the Jama'a, under Fodio's endorsement, pushed the revolution southeast, conquering the kingdoms of Mandara and Wukari in modern Nigeria and Cameroon. With the existence of the Sokoto Imamit now cemented by a series of successful wars against its neighbors, Fodio had completed his seventh step of revolution, the struggle. The enemies of the Jama'a had been defeated, and Fodio now ruled over the largest contiguous territory not only in Western Africa, but in the entire continent. But, as any scholar of political revolutions can tell you, the initial struggle to overthrow the Ancien Regime is only the beginning. In the next part of our mini-series, we'll conclude our study of the Sokoto Jihad by examining the society that Fodio left behind. Did the Sokoto Jihad live up to Fodio's ambition to create a truly righteous society, one free of corruption, abuse, ignorance, and suffering? Or is the name Uthman Don Fodio yet another entry in a long list of revolutionaries whose legacy is doomed to be one of hypocrisy and shortcoming? <laughs> Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you want to support the show, you can do so for free by leaving a review on iTunes or Spotify or any other listening app, or you can just share the show to anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. And if you really want to go all the way in supporting the show, you can join the many people already supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Of course, this episode was made to celebrate our 100th patron, and so, the people who supported the show got to vote on the topic of this episode, and they chose the Sokoto Jihad. Some of our top Patreon supporters include the following people. Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tungland, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebalabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyun Olromtimain, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, and Samuel Bado, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot. <laughs>